Sounds like someone would rather listen to me preach. <laughs> I'd invite you to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 2. Familiar passage for us the last Sunday before Christmas. So Luke chapter 2, and the reading will be from uh, verse 1 to verse 21. If you do. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let us pray. Our Father, we do give you thanks for this message from your word, what an incredible one, surprising one, and yet filled with hope for the world. So may we put our hope in the Christ who was born in Bethlehem. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Like many of the children who just made their way downstairs, I also loved Christmas when I was their age. I loved Christmas decorations, but there was one Christmas decoration that I did not like and believed, even as a very young boy, that it was completely unnecessary. And that, of course, is the mistletoe. <laughs> At my grandma's house, the mistletoe would always hang either under the lights in their dining room, just off of their kitchen, or sometimes it would, it would be hung up underneath one of the doorways between the dining room and the, and the living room. I tried my best to avoid walking under that mistletoe, but when I did, it was too 
it was uh, the, the mistletoe that was under the door was always too, too difficult for me to avoid. So, you know, I had, I had three aunts that were always there for Christmas gatherings when I was young. And if they caught me under that mistletoe, they would proceed to both kiss and tickle me, which was quite unnerving for a seven-year-old boy. But by far my favorite Christmas decoration when I was a boy at my grandma's house was her nativity set. And it usually sat on an end table. Um, and I loved the nativity set because the figures in the set were kind of about the same size as my Star Wars action figures. And the little stable uh, that my grandma had, had had these stairs that went up to the hayloft in this little, 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 little stable. And so I, I just love to you know, take the figures, take Joseph or take some shepherds and kind of walk them up those stairs into that hayloft. So they kind of get a better view you know, of uh, the Christ child laying in the manger or they could have a better view if there's anybody you know, coming around to attack. Uh, they'd have a good, a good vantage point of that if there's any stormtroopers coming or something. Um, and I just love playing with that stable. Of course, I imagined if I was at that stable... Well, man, I'd be going up those stairs, and I'd be in the hayloft playing and, and, and looking down on those animals and on the baby. Nativity sets are quite a popular Christmas decoration. We have several that we've uh, received as gifts in our home, and we even have the, the Fisher-Price version for our children. And uh, Betty, of course, loves to play with, uh, with uh, that now, and uh, it is, you know, it is pretty cute. But that is kind of what we end up thinking about Christ's birth when we think about the manger or think about the, the scene of Mary and Joseph with the baby Jesus and that manger. We tend to think of it as, as cute, as sentimental. How the animals got to witness the birth, how, how warm and snugly that, that manger must have felt for the baby Jesus. And when we think about it that way, we, we definitely get the wrong impression that we are supposed to get from what we read here in Luke chapter 2. Uh, back in, in 1998, singer-songwriter Andrew Peterson wrote a song about the birth of Christ called Labor of Love. And that does a much better job of helping us to picture and sense how it really was when the Christ was born. One of the verses goes like this, It was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. You could hear a woman cry in the alleyways that night on the streets of David's town. And the stable was not clean, and the cobblestones were cold. And little Mary, full of grace, with the tears upon her face, had no mother's hand to hold. Mothers and fathers, imagine the birth of your first child taking place, not in a comfortable, sterile room, but in a place normally reserved as a shelter for livestock, and then laying your newborn baby down, not in a warm, comfortable, and safe crib, but in one of the feeding troughs that just a few hours earlier, donkeys were eating hay out of. That is what we are meant to picture here. A baby born in the poorest of circumstances. Back on April 23rd of this year, a different baby was born, uh, Prince Louis Arthur Charles. He is the third child born to Prince William, 
the Duke of Cambridge. I thought it would be interesting to hear about what it was like for Kate, the Duke of Cambridge's wife, to, to give birth as royalty in England. And here's what I found out about what, it, what it's like uh, to give birth in, in the Lindo wing of St. Mary's Hospital where all three of their children have been born. It said, in the rooms where Kate will give birth are soothing pastel tones, a comfy armchair next to the bed, and a, soft, and a sofa bed for partners to take a snooze. Meals are cooked by chefs, and a waiter comes around every morning to take orders for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. There's also a wine and champagne list and the option of afternoon tea. If that sounds good to you, here's what it will cost you to have your baby there in St. Mary's Hospital in the Lindo Wing. It says, rooms start at a minimum of 5,215 pounds a night, which that's roughly $6,600. But suites are also available. If you apply for them and are said to cost around 10,000 pounds a night, which is around $12,658. So you might say that, that, that that's quite a contrast to how God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, came into the world. And that contrast is one of the main points of Luke's account of his birth here in our, our text. So this, of course, is very, uh, a very familiar passage for us, which is it's heard quite a bit this time of year. And there, there's so much we could focus on in this passage, but this morning we're going to focus on what seems to be the primary message of it. And that is this, that the Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself to the lowest place in order to save his people and lift them up to the highest place. The passage breaks up nicely into three sections. The first section is verses 1 through 7, which focuses really on that contrast that we were just talking about. So I've, I've labeled that, that contrast the palace and the feeding trough, or the stark contrast between two kings in verses 1 through 7. If you've ever been asked to read this passage at a family Christmas party, especially if you were fairly young when you first were asked to do that, uh, that seems to be the tradition now in my family. Um, like as soon as a, as, a, as a grandchild can read, my mom asks them to be the one reading you know, this passage in, in Luke 2 in front of the whole family when we celebrate Christmas. I'm sure you, you kind of wish that Luke would have just left the names of these two rulers out of the story, right? Especially... Quirinius. But these names are actually pretty important here. One of the main reasons for why Luke includes them is to, to place the event of the birth of Christ into a specific time in history. So this, this dates it for us. This shows it was an historical event that took place within the Roman Empire. Just like, you know, my parents might, might, might say that I was born in the month after Richard Nixon resigned as president and in the second month of Gerald Ford's presidency, and while Robert Ray was the governor of Iowa, which wouldn't have been uh, that interesting of a thing, as Robert Ray governed Iowa for, I think, 20-some years. But, but there, there's another main reason why, why Luke would, would mention Caesar Augustus here in this passage. You see, Luke wants his readers to note the great contrast between how the rulers of this world thought of themselves and how they exercised their, their power over their people, and how God sent his son into the world. Jesus is the savior of God's people and the king over his forever kingdom. And through this passage, God wanted us to, to not be so impressed or to be in awe of worldly kings, but rather instead to come to recognize 
how God seems to do his work amongst the lowly, amongst the humble. And he seems to do his work fairly unnoticed by the power brokers of the day. So Caesar Augustus here, he reigned over the Roman world, which was a huge empire throughout all of the Mediterranean Sea. He reigned from about 31 B.C. until his death in A.D. 14. He was considered by many historians to be one of the most successful of the Roman emperors, bringing about the period that is known as the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome, to the empire. Roman rule during his time protected the main trade routes and got rid of much of the piracy taking place in the Mediterranean Sea. And as long as you submitted yourself to Roman rule, then you could live at peace in the empire. But part of that submission was, of course, the paying of taxes, which Caesar Augustus believed his subjects owed to him for providing them with this peace and allowing them to live within the greatest empire in the world at the time, or at least that's what he believed. And that is the context here for Joseph and Mary's trip to Bethlehem. They were not making the 90-mile trip in the ninth month of Mary's pregnancy because they wanted to visit family in Bethlehem. They're not making this trip because Bethlehem's hospital had a much nicer neonatal facility for them. No, they were forced to make the three-day journey in order to be registered to pay their taxes to the pagan emperor of Rome. Augustus was not his real name. It was actually Octavian. But after reigning for four years, the Roman Senate granted him the title Augustus, which means majestic or holy. And an inscription that was found and dated to 9 BC hails Augustus as a god. A god whose, quote, Birthday signaled the beginning of good news for the world. Hear that again. His birthday, Caesar Augustus, signaled the beginning of good news for the world. Another inscription which has been preserved by the British Museum celebrated the reign of Caesar Augustus with this description. Augustus is the father of his divine homeland Rome, inherited from his father Zeus, which was the most powerful of the, of the Greek gods in the, in the Greek god myths, and a savior of the common folk. So to the Romans, Caesar Augustus was thought of as a god, a son of God, and a savior. They credit him for bringing peace to the Roman world, but of course, the way he brought that peace was through the sword. In reality, Augustus was a bloodthirsty tyrant, harshly ruling over his people and maintaining power by intimidation and controlling a strong military force. So when we, we, when we are told in Luke that he ordered there to be a census or a registration, all citizens, even to the far reaches of, of his empire, like the small town of Nazareth and Bethlehem, well, they had all better obey or risk being killed. And yet in the midst of the rule of this so-called God, another king was born, a much different kind of king, a king who, hasn't, who, who wasn't born in a palace in a great city, but rather who was born in a small town made up of shepherds and farmers, and when he was born, his parents weren't even able to stay within a guest house, and so had to lay their child to sleep 
in a feeding trough, a feeding trough for livestock rather than a nice warm bed. And even in, in the first century, which didn't have hospitals and didn't have the incredible technology that we enjoy today, still you couldn't get much lower than having to use a feeding trough for your newborn baby's crib. That's mentioned three times in our passage, in verse 7, verse 12, verse 16. Luke wants us to get this. The Christ child, the Son of God, laid in a feeding trough. This was a clear sign of the poverty and the lowly place in society that Mary and Joseph had. It showed that that God's sovereign purpose for his son's coming into the world would be one of the most humble, poor, and lowly ways possible. Christ had not just come to, to bless those who were wealthy. He did not just come to lift up those who were of the upper class or even of the middle class. When when Christ was born, God showed that he cared about all people. He identified primarily with the poor, those who were under oppression, those who were at the mercy of a foreign ruler who could control their lives according to his own desires, who forced them to travel for three days in the ninth month of a pregnancy just because he wanted to feed his ego and as well as feed his pockets with their taxes. The world that Christ came into was a broken one, especially for those who were poor. And Christ jumped right in exactly where they were at. Secondly, the next section is verses 8 through 14. And here we see, with Christ's coming, The lowly and despised receive a glorious privilege. Verses 8 through 14 here. The whole story has been full of surprises from the elderly Zechariah's encounter with the angel Gabriel, announcing to him that he and his wife would soon have their first child who would prepare the way for the Savior, to the young virgin Mary being told that she would miraculously give birth to the Son of God, and then to his being born in the midst of livestock to this scene now we have here of the shepherds of all people being the first to receive the divine announcement that Christ the Savior had been born. It just has been one incredible surprise after another. I I, I can't imagine how it would have been like for those shepherds to receive this visitation. First from the one angel announcing the good news and then to be surrounded by the glory of the angel army all around them, singing their praises to God. I mean, how absolutely frightening and yet how awe-inspiring that would have been for the shepherds. In March of 2009, my wife and I got to do something that I had wanted to experience for a long time. We got to stand on the southern rim of the Grand Canyon on a bright, sunny afternoon and just take it all in. It really was far more awesome than I imagined it would be. I was in awe of what I was seeing. Now, if while we were there standing on that south rim, staring out with our mouths open at the incredibly beautiful canyon, and all of a sudden, a man would have like leapt up into the air from out of the canyon in front of us and yelled at us, I would have felt a little more like these shepherds did then. I would have been in awe And I would have been scared to death. But of course that never happened to us, yet it does here for the shepherds. Although they had 
had have been more frightened than they ever were before and more in awe than they ever were before, they were actually given one of the greatest privileges anyone has ever been given. They were the first to receive the good news of the birth of the Savior. What a glorious privilege. And for shepherds of all people, you know, the angels did not appear before King Herod in his court. They didn't appear before Caesar's court or Quirinus's. For, 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 that, for, for that matter, the angels were not sent to the temple to announce this good news to the high priest and the, and the other priests serving there, nor were they sent to those who are looked up to as holy men and the religious leaders of the day. No, none of those people of high positions receive this incredible privilege of hearing from God through his angel hosts, hearing from them that the Messiah, the Christ, had been born, the Savior of the world had come. Instead, it was these lowly shepherds. Shepherds were were definitely among the most common people in Judea and at the world in this time. They were not looked up to as people of significance. They were not among the elites. And yet the Lord chooses them to receive this message. And not just to receive it, but to carry it. To take it into Bethlehem and to begin to spread this news around there. Remember what, what, what this message is. It is essentially the message of salvation. The Savior had been born. They were told who he was. And they were told how to find him. You know, what a privilege to have this message which could help to save those who heard it and believed. And you know, we find ourselves in a similar situation today, don't we? I mean, look around you. We, we are definitely not members of the upper echelons of society. Those who have truly believed in Christ the Savior and who know him personally have always been those whom the world has generally despised. Today, the society that we all live in mocks people like us who believe what the Bible says about Jesus and who believe what Jesus says about sin and salvation. In many nations around our world, those who confess that Jesus Christ is man's only Savior are openly persecuted and imprisoned. Some are killed. Throughout the world as a whole, those who truly believe that this message, this message that the angels brought to the shepherds, that Jesus is the Savior, they are rejected and looked down upon, much like these shepherds were in their day. Yet we are the ones who have received this message. We are the ones who have the message, which is the message of the gospel, that the only way of being saved from the judgment to come is through knowing and following Christ. The only way to eternal life is through knowing Christ, Jesus, personally. Trusting that he is who God said he was. He is the anointed king, the savior, the son of God. Do you believe the angel's message? Do you believe that that, that is who the baby in the feeding trough really was? Well, if so, then you'll respond much like we see the shepherds responding here. And that's our next section, verses 15 through 21. I've labeled it, the journey that begins in faith will generally end in praise. 
So how do the shepherds respond to this good news from heaven that they had received? Well, first we see they responded in faith. They believed the message. Uh, and we know that. We know that they believed because they obeyed the message. They went to Bethlehem, as it says, to see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. This was not a skeptical response, but a believing response. And so they acted on their belief. They went to see the baby in the feeding trough who was the Savior. If we are to, to, to be saved, then we must have a similar response to the good news. We must believe that the news is true. We must accept as truth that first we desperately need a Savior, which might be the most difficult truth to accept for us. But we need a Savior because God sent a Savior. And secondly, that Jesus Christ really is the Savior God has sent to rescue us. And if we do believe that, well, then we will act out our belief by doing what his word tells us to do, just like the shepherds did what God's word told them to do. Second, the, the, the shepherds got to know Jesus personally. They got to know him personally. It says, they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. They got to know Jesus personally. They saw his face. They knew what he looked like. They, they knew he was a person who could be personally known. So, so have you come to know Jesus personally? Would, would you be able to recognize him if you saw him? Now, I don't mean what his face looks like physically, you know. But I mean, you know, do you know him well enough to recognize those who truly represent him? And are you able to discern those that don't? Jesus warned his disciples that there would, be, there would be people who would claim to speak for him, who would be false teachers, who would actually be promoting false Christs or antichrists. And there are many, so many out there today on television, on radio, on the internet, claiming they speak for Jesus, claiming they are doing the things that Jesus did, like healing or prophesying. Do you know Jesus well enough to discern his words from the words of someone who doesn't represent him at all? Do you know him? Thankfully, Christ has given us ways to know him, know him personally, which are actually much better than the shepherds just being able to see and hold Jesus as, as a baby. We have his word. We have his very words in the Bible where we can really get to know him. We can get to know him from what he says, what he says about himself and what he teaches, and we also can have, a, have relationships with people who are filled with his spirit. That, of course, is those who are part of the church. We can know Jesus personally through these ways. So do you know him personally? Are you regularly getting together with others who know him personally, who hear his word, who seek to obey his word. Next it says that the shepherds made known the saying that, they had been, that, that had been told them concerning this child. This is another faithful response to hearing and believing the good news. They must have really believed it was good news that the Christ child had, had, had been born, and that is why they made it known uh, as to who he was. 
he was the Savior. Angels had announced and pointed to this child that he was the Savior, and now the shepherds probably had no idea how he was going to save them. But that detail is never as important as knowing who the Savior is, and then pointing others to him. So again, is that something that you do? Do you know the Savior? And if so, are you pointing others to him to help them to get to know him as well? And the shepherds, of course, couldn't stay for long. After all, they had to get back to their sheep. But, but, but after seeing Jesus, these shepherds were changed men. It says they returned, glorifying and praising God. As J.C. Ryle noted in his commentary, it's where I get the heading for the section from, the journey that begins in faith will generally end in praise. The shepherds realized that they were given such a privilege, it humbled them. They couldn't believe that the Lord God Almighty had chosen them to hear the good news about the coming of the Messiah. And so they praised and glorified God. What a gracious God. And I wonder... Do we realize how incredibly privileged we are to also have been chosen by God to hear this good news about Christ? To to, to hear and to know that he is the Savior which God has sent into the world. In our uh, adult Sunday school class, we're currently watching videos which are documentary style reports about the gospel's advance in some of the most difficult places in the world for Christians to serve in. The one that we're watching now is focused on China. Did you know that China, their population is around 1.36 billion people. That's nearly 20% of all people alive today live in China. Of those 1.36 billion living in China, only 6% believe the good news of, of Jesus Christ, and are following him. That means 1.28 billion in China aren't following Jesus. They don't know him. Many don't know that he is the only Savior God sent. Many have never heard the name Jesus. But you have. And you do know who he is. What a great privilege that is for you. And at the same time, what an opportunity for the church today to be like the shepherds and go to places like China with haste to make Christ known among them. This Christmas, as you gather with your loved ones around a tree or around a table, take a moment to ponder like Mary did just how incredibly privileged you are to know the good news that Jesus Christ is the Savior, that you can be covered with his righteousness and have eternal life by believing that he is who the angels said he was and trusting in him alone for your justification before a holy God. And pray for those who don't know. Pray for those who haven't heard, those in China, or or maybe those who will be around the Christmas dinner table With you. As 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. 
he was willing to leave his throne in heaven for the feeding trough in order to bring us into the supreme richness of eternal fellowship with God. May more of us be willing to just leave our place of comfort, whether that's your place of comfort among your friends or among your family, in order to share with someone else about Christ, knowing that, that like the shepherds, that taking that journey of faith, and it will be a journey of faith, but in the end, it will lead to joy and praise. Let's pray. Oh, Father, that is our prayer, that you would help us to, to take that journey of faith, to put our hope and our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, and then to, by faith, like the shepherds, share the good news with others, point others to the Lord Jesus Christ, believing that if we do so, that in the end, it will be eternal joy for us, eternal praise and glory for you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.